Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. This week we're airing another pre-recorded episode in our strange new world. This episode is airing on Sunday, March 29th, but we're recording on Saturday, March 28th. So apologies if some of this information is out of date. So we will be talking about surprise, the coronavirus, and maybe more. And we'll be looking closely at an incarcerated populations in our current pandemic age as well. So today we have Emily, Jasmine, Matt, and Teresa. Hey guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. How's everyone doing from uh, their own homes right now recording? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm drinking tea and making biscuits, so. Oh, so homey. Barking in the background. I'm doing okay. It's just I'm hanging in there with my cat. I'm glad that the weather is bad, so it'll keep me inside for sure. I was talking to my roommate today about that, too, where it was like yesterday was really hard because it was so beautiful. And today it's like it's like almost like a weight is lifted because there's like less of an urge to go outside. Mm, Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that my uh, my housemate as well is just because we don't have many indicators of how many people that are sick and and unfortunately have died from this. So it's, it's very surreal, isn't it? Wait, what do you mean, Matt, with that, about indicators? Like, I'm sorry, like environmental ones, right? It's not like there's a cloud that we can see that oh. is the virus. <laughs> it's, right. just, it's just something we know is happening right. elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the elsewhere isn't even that far from your house, but you still can't see it. There's a metaphysical cloud. I know I've heard um, an increase in sirens in the past week in my neighborhood. Yeah, I'm, I feel I say I feel the same way. I feel like I hear sirens constantly throughout the day, and I'm like, I don't know if part of it is my mind playing tricks on me because typically I'm either at work or something like that, and maybe that's why I hear them. But I'm thinking like, yeah, it's probably because all these people are getting sick in droves and have to be taken by ambulance. Mm. Did anybody else see the the map that they uh, I think the city released on the neighborhoods where most of the viruses are coming from, and it's like mostly just like Brooklyn and like one area in the Bronx. No, I didn't hear that. No, I didn't see that. That blows. Yeah, yeah, it was posted on one of the uh, one of the Brooklyn Facebook pages, and yes, yeah, it's just like no one in Manhattan. Well, I mean, not no one, but like um, less than fifty percent of the people that are admitted come from Manhattan and it's like oh curse you <laughs> hiding away in your like nice little um, uh, castles but what I, I would say too is I've been reading a lot of stories about people who have means leaving Manhattan and going to other places to get treatment and then causing outbreaks out there so I don't know if that's maybe it, probably in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and I know there's a lot in Queens, too, where you have a lot of people that have nowhere else to go. It's going to be more concentrated in their area, whereas you have people that have money that are like, I'm going to the Hamptons. I'm going to go to my place in Jersey or Long Island. So they're taking it with them, but they're not necessarily the people that still have to get up and go to work on a train every day. And stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And on that note, too, I was actually I was talking to someone about that's a huge problem with um, 
people thinking they're trying to get away from the problem and bringing it with them. And while New York yet, yeah, well, it's it's going to be very, you know, we're all kind of feeling this like pressure of like, is there enough supplies here? When are we going to run out of space and equipment and stuff? But places like the Hamptons and Martha's Vineyard, like those hospitals have like four ventilators like each, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's less densely populated there, you know, and that feels like safety, but it's also like, it's that safety is also sort of an illusion in some ways too. Um, it's kind of, it's crazy the way you have to like kind of tiptoe your way through the world in a lot of ways right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, to give you a little bit of a layup, this might be a good intro to, uh, your first story, Emily, um, navigating that weird (laughs) world that we're in. Mm. Oh, that was a a self layup. (laughs) Yeah, like a little segue into you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point, Matt. Yeah, I'm going to dive in. Um, Okay, so I have a couple local stories to start us off. And this first one is um, a little bit of a PSA for everyone in the New York area listening. Um, So there's currently, uh, there has been set up a free mental health hotline for New Yorkers. Um, The story and the information, it comes largely from an AM New York article by Beth Dedman. Um, But I've seen this information dispersed widely. Um, So in light of the ongoing coronavirus crisis, 6,175 mental health professionals are donating their time and providing free remote mental health services. If you are feeling overwhelmed in our new and strange and uncertain times, you are not alone. And you can call 1-844-863-9314 to schedule an appointment. I'm going to say that number again. It's 1-844-863-9314 to schedule a free appointment. Uh, So Governor Cuomo announced this in conjunction with the announcement that, quote, 40,000 healthcare workers, including retirees and students, have signed up to volunteer to work as part of the state's surge healthcare force during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. That's from the article. About the need for mental health services, Governor Cuomo quoted, we've talked about the emotional stress that this brings on people and the mental health stress and mental challenges. No one is really talking about this. We are all concerned about the immediate critical need, the life and death of the immediate situation, which is right, but don't underestimate the emotional trauma that people are feeling and the emotional health issues. Cuomo also gave the following quote, which kind of made me tear up a little bit. Um, So he said... I can see how New Yorkers are responding. I can see how New Yorkers are treating one another. I see the 6,000 mental health volunteers. I see the 40,000 healthcare workers stepping up. I see the vendors calling me saying, I can help. That's New York. That is New York. And that, my friends, is undefeatable. And I'm glad in some ways that we're the first with the situation because we will overcome and we will show the other communities across the globe how to do it, across this country how to do it. We'll be there for them. We want them to be there for us. And we will be there for each other as we always have been. Um, it's really something. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the end of that story. It's more just a note for anyone listening who feels maybe alone, overwhelmed, and doesn't have um, an outlet to talk about those things. That New York is paying attention to that as an issue. Um, and Yeah. There's I definitely think there's there. a great resource, Emily. I um, was looking for some things for my students because a lot of them have been saying that isolation is really hard for them. 
that coming to class on campus was like a way for them to connect with people. And it's been really difficult to just have to operate on your own. Um, so any sort of, you know, services that could be offered where people would just simply have someone to talk to and connect to, I think is so necessary at this time. Like I'm even really grateful for this platform to connect with you guys. Cause it kind of keeps me in the know, keeps me going. Last night I logged on to the um, radio free Brooklyn happy hour just to hear people's voices, you know? Um, and it was really great to just kind of have that sense of let's all just kind of come together and be supportive to one another when we don't know what our future looks like, you know, it was really great. So thanks for bringing that story to light. Yeah. That was yeah, great. of course. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. And I think I've been having a good time. Well, a good time as good a time as one can have <laughs> under the circumstances, but like keeping in touch with friends and things. But I also think it's important to remember that your friends and people that you actually know, they also have things going on. So maybe it doesn't mean that they don't care about you or something, but it's good to have a resource of sometimes an outside person, especially a professional that you can talk to about some of these things because you know, the average lay person, like that's not their training or they're also trying to cope with something and you might be bringing them down even more. So it's good to have something else in your toolbox other than just like your family and your friends. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. I, I believe I learned the term natural support years ago and that's what you like your friends and family are. And it's incredibly important, but natural supports aren't, um, aren't, uh, you know, therapists or whatever have yeah, any no. of you i mean both all three of you are are fairly good listeners and insightful people do do any of your friends kind of make you play um confidant or therapist well yeah um you know I'm, I'm a counselor i'm a student services counselor at work so my every day you know besides the other things that i have to do i'm the person at my job that has the open door and it's for you know the the students and the staff so, you know, one of my students suggested that I build kind of a student support group on Zoom for our students this week, like a check-in. We used to do one called High Tea, where we would just have tea and cookies and come and just talk about whatever was in our mind. She was like, I could really use a virtual high tea right now. And I was like, you know what, that's really great because we all need that sense of just somebody who has nothing to do with what's going on with us listening to us makes us feel more comfortable, you know? Mm, yeah. Definitely. Um, awesome. Yeah. I, uh, in some ways, we're lucky that this is happening in an age where we're so connected digitally. And it's like, you know, there's always debate in a normal time about how healthy it is to have like everything on social media and everything digital and less in interpersonal interface. But like, in a situation like this, having that ability to group chat, you know, four of your friends that can't be with you right now is kind is a blessing. It feels like a blessing in a lot of ways. Imagine how bored I'd be in the 90s or the 80s, only having to call people. <laughs> or waiting for the phone line for your mom or your big sister to get off the phone. Yeah. And no yeah. internet or like very minimal, you know, ways of getting new information. Just a news channel or the radio. No, the radio is great, but <laughs> I know I feel like there should be a surge in radio right now. 
think there yeah. is in some ways. Um, I'm seeing mixed reports because a lot of people listen to stuff like that on their commute. So there's been a little bit of a drop, but then also people are just doing stuff around their houses. So it's like a little bit of a, you know, there's like up in some ways and down in a few others. Um, mm. I haven't seen a set set of numbers on that though. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm currently trying to sell this limited series to a podcast company. And one person I talked to was actually uh, June Thomas from Slate, uh, who's on the the Waves, that show. She also like uh, is one of like the senior podcast like um, producers or whatever. And she told me like listenership and readership is going way up or is going up in Slate. Well, but like ad and money is like has completely dropped off. <laughs> so it's right. It's, it's a really strange thing. Because companies aren't going to invest in advertising right now. Um, Interesting. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, next story, guys. Are we ready? Yeah, let's go for it. Are we ready? Are we, are we running? Ready? <laughs> are you right, going to run freeze? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So this story is about the push for a rent freeze in New York. Um, anyone in the area... I'm who pays rent or collects rent is like kind of this, you know, besides health of your personal health and the health of people, you know, and care about, this is probably like the next biggest issue for you is like wondering how you're going to pay your rent considering um, everything going on. So a lot of the information from this comes from a Gothamist article by Jake Offenharts. Um, so here we go. So there are a lot of New Yorkers wondering how they're going to pay their rent next week. Actually, there are a lot of people nationwide who are wondering, but for the sake of the story, I'm going to focus on New York. And actually, actually, there are a lot of people who are always unsure of whether they'll be able to make their next rent payment. But again, that's a different story. So right now, the uh, with record numbers of unemployment due to the coronavirus pandemic, there are a lot more New Yorkers than usual wondering how they'll pay rent. While there is a statewide suspension of tenant evictions during this crisis, once that suspension is lifted, there are going to be major problems for a large number of renters in New York who have suddenly lost their source of income. Ellen Davidson, a staff lawyer for the Legal Aid Society, um, said, quote, oh, she predicted, quote, that tens or hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers could face eviction once the eviction moratorium is lifted and they're forced to pay back their rents. Uh, she said the eviction stay, while welcome, is the quiet before the storm. And if thousands of people no longer have their homes, have homes, it's going to lead to a humanitarian crisis that we haven't seen in my lifetime. So it feels pretty frustrating that there has been a statewide hold on mortgage payments for 90 days, but not on rent payments, clearly benefiting homeowners and landlords. Uh, that becomes even more frustrating when you hear these statistics. About two thirds of New York City residents are renters. And a recent survey found that almost 40% of New Yorkers don't have enough money saved to pay even one month's rent if their source of income is cut off. That's 40% of New Yorkers. Um, the somewhat good news is that there is state Senate legislation currently gathering support that would waive rent payments for the next three months. There's even one Republican who supports it. Uh, but unfortunately, it appears that Governor Cuomo isn't stepping up on this issue. Uh, don't get me wrong. He's become the hero Gotham needs right now. Um, and that's it's just a little sorry because I recently rewatched The Dark Knight. Um, so I'm quoting a lot of Batman recently. But um, but obviously this is a glaring issue. All jokes aside, um, that needs to be dealt with in ASAP. Um, and I actually I, I wrote that yesterday. And then this morning saw like a new update or I wonder, did I save it? 
um, that there's a city, um, there's people in the New York City Council also working on this. Um, I wonder if I can find that quickly. Um, Yes, okay, the mayor announced yesterday evening um, that the city government is working to establish a rent freeze for all unstabilized renters. Um, That would suspend monthly rent for an undetermined period. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of vague (laughs) non-information, but that I got actually from my um, Citizen app. Thank you, Citizen. But um, yeah, we're all anxiously wondering, um, you know, how we're going to pay rent. What do y'all think? Yeah, that's wild. My housemate who uh, used to work in for the city in housing said that Cuomo, uh, she said that his style is like, instead of like passing a bill, uh, is just taking all the good things from the bill and then like passing it independently. So she doesn't like him very much. So it's, um, he may not be as uh, reluctant as, as it seems. Well, I, I don't know. I think I was just talking to Matt about this yesterday. Like my plan is to like pay half my rent. Um, just so that, you know, I'm like being conscious of, the renters, you know, my responsibility to my landlord, but I'm in a situation where it's time for us to move. So we were supposed to be letting them know this month that we were going to stay or go. But I obviously can't tell you either <laughs> right now. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, but they, I didn't notice they sent out rent notices earlier this month. Um, kind of inferring, like, don't, you know, don't try to pull a fast one. But I, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. We're only like three days from it. So if they're going to do something, it better happen Monday morning. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I was wondering if my landlord was going to offer something, which, of course, was probably like some like, <laughs> what am I, who am I getting? Like, that's not going to happen. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, if you like reached out to your landlord and said, listen, here's my situation. Like, I just lost my job. You know, they might be able to accommodate it depends what kind of relationship you have with your landlord obviously um in a very specific case-by-case situation unless there's a blanket legislation situation happening yeah i um, i oh sorry go ahead jasmine um my plan for now is just to continue as normal because i'm i'm lucky enough to still have my normal income for now so, and I also don't live in a complex. I live in a private house. So I think it, I would probably do differently if I were living in um, like one of my old apartment buildings where it's some company. I think I would be more likely to be like, hey, I'm just going to pay half or try to save this or that. But I wanted to ask what y'all thought about how this is affecting Airbnb. I don't know if you've seen how many people have been, you know, messing up the rental market because like they'll rent an apartment but not actually live in it and put it out on airbnb and now that that's all messed up i'm wondering if this will lead to some like long-term changes with renting in the city hopefully right i mean it it's it's it certainly is a massive display of how big of a problem this is if um people are spending half and more of their income on rent i mean that's that's not sustainable like when these type of evictions and not being able to rent pay rent happens like you know a little bit every month 
we don't see that as a massive problem, but when it when it happens to us all at once, we can see just quite how big of a problem is. Uh, I thought you all might find this interesting. I there's a Facebook group called the Landlord Tipping Advocacy Group, which I thought was a joke. It's it's a group that is for that thinks that you should tip your landlord. And so I contacted them just to like ask them what they're about and if they're a real group because I was thinking it might be. I don't know, just like I wanted to see what the hell they were. And here's what the the person wrote back. Uh, Hi, Matthew. The Landlord Tipping Advocacy Group has been around for a few months now. As more and more people have begun unfairly attacking landlords, we decided to begin advoca- advocating for this underrepresented and important class of people. We think it's a good place to start tipping. It'd be great to see more widespread appreciation but wanted to focus on one specific area. Landlords are one of the few jobs where you're not even guaranteed a minimum wage. So that's uh, that's the spokesperson for the landlord tipping advocacy group. Okay, well, that's really interesting on a lot of levels, but also including that, like, you're a property owner at that point, which, like, puts you in a certain class already. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, I think it just shows the disconnection between, uh, yeah, I mean, they feel under threat and a lot of uh, people in power feel under threat. I'm mostly talking about like white people with money where, you know, we feel like, well, I don't really have money, but um, my family is uh, okay. And and they feel like, like people are out to get them because, you know, we just hadn't seen the repercussions of our actions and ill-gotten power. <laughs> We're coming to get you. We're coming for you all. <laughs> the like, chicken is coming home to roost. It's count your days. But also, <laughs> yeah, it's like people. Um, on that note, I think we should take a break for some music. <laughs> okay. Uh, did you Sorry. ask me one more thought, though? Did you? Sure. Ask- yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think that this whole situation has exposed how people that they might have the air of having everything together, but they really don't because they're also li- somebody tweeted is like, you're living paycheck to paycheck and your landlord is living from your paycheck to your next paycheck. And they're not able to, you know, make it because there's so much like gambling. Basically it's like, you're just gambling on the fact that, you know, you can continue to live off of other people working but that's not a guarantee. Like, shit happens. And now it's like, I don't know, I think a lot of stuff that m- might have seemed solid or like, yeah, it's such a good investment. It's like, you don't know that, you know? And I think it's showing how, in a lot of ways, it is, housing is a human right. It should be treated as a human right. And it is inherently exploitative for you to have to pay just have a roof over your head. I hope more people like organize and figure out a way to the system. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. That's, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, it, it's not, America is not just a couple. Uh, yeah. A, a lot of people, even with like money and resources still can't afford, um, uh, you know, a lot of stuff and it's all <laughs> the cracks are showing as, as you said. Right. Uh, Teresa, I think we're ready for our music cue. 
All right. So uh, speaking of things that can make Emily cry a little, here's one of our favorite <laughs> songs about illness. This is Ted, Ted, Ted Hawkins, Sorry You're Sick. We'll be right back. To let you know that I'm sorry you're sick. Though tears of sorrow won't do you no good. I'd be your doctor if only I could. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet. I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. I swim the ocean or the deepest canal to get to you, darling, just to make you well. There's no place on earth I would hasten to go to cool the fever. This I want you to know. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet? I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. If only the doctor would hurry and show. There's quite a few places I know we could go. I was okay, but these words from you stayed in you sick and made me sick too. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet? I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. Promise me, darling, that you won't die. I'll get all the medicine money can buy. Stick with me, baby, hold on and fight. Take a good rest, I won't prolong the flight. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet? I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet? I'll buy you all that your belly can hold. You can be sure you won't suffer no more. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your live Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for some national news. So, Jasmine? Hey, so this is um, something that I saw in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, it's an article that gives some perspective about um, triage and allocating ventilators during a pandemic. And the article was written by Robert D. Truog, Christine Mitchell, and George Q. Daly. So as a lot of us know, know the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a lot of severe shortages of many essential goods and services like masks and other protective gear. Of all the medical care that will have to be rationed, the biggest problem is going to be posed by mechanical ventilators. According to the New York Times, we currently have 170,000 ventilators in the U.S., but an estimated 960,000 people will need one over the course of this pandemic. So that's almost a million people projected to need a mechanical ventilator. The number of patients needing ventilation could range between 1.4 and 31 patients per ventilator. When a patient needs a ventilator, there's typically only a limited window during which the person can be saved. And when the machine is taken away from someone who is fully ventilator dependent, that usually means that the patient is going to die within a few minutes. 
the New York state guidelines try to target saving the most lives, and that's defined by the patient's short-term likelihood of surviving whatever the acute medical episode is. But one of the things that's um, unusual about this new illness is that when people go on a ventilator, under normal circumstances, they can be taken off after a couple of days and they stabilize. But we're seeing cases of people that have to be on ventilators for many days at a time before they improve, if they improve. So the New York, this um, article is suggesting that clinicians should proactively engage in discussions with patients and families about do not intubate orders for high-risk subgroups of patients before their health deteriorates. Um, we, we know that right now, given how contagious the disease is, a lot of COVID patients don't have someone in the room with them. Um, the doctors wrote here that deciding to withdraw ventilators during a pandemic to make the resource available to another patient can't be ethically justified because it's not being done at the request of the patient or their advocate, and you can't honestly say that the treatment is futile. Because even though the chances of survival might be low in this situation, if it weren't for the pandemic, the treatment would be continued. So in theory, like, yes, the person could survive, but you're making a decision because of um, just the present situation. The article suggests using a triage committee to buffer clinicians from the harm of making the decision themselves to remove a ventilator. And they suggest that the committee should be made up of volunteers who are leaders um, in the medical community. Uh, and the thought is that this allows the patients, the physicians and nurses to focus on caring for the patients and not going through like the mental anguish of having to make a life or death decision. The committee members, according to the article, should also um, be responsible for communicating the decision for, to the family members. And having the committee members communicate that decision would ensure that the message is clear and accurate and prevent confusion or misunderstandings in the future. They also feel like the separate team of um, healthcare professionals should be responsible for removing the ventilator instead of the actual doctor or nurse themselves that's giving the care. And the team should also have experience in palliative care and emotional support for patients and families. Um, so yeah, like this is a, I thought that this was important because it brings up a lot of questions about whose life do you choose to save like when you have such limited resources. And unfortunately, there's a lot of basically like eugenicist arguments that are being made right now. Like in Alabama, the guidelines were saying explicitly that like someone who has a disability, like some cognitive issue or someone with dementia people with other long-term health care issues, just stating explicitly that this person would not be a priority if we have a limited number wow. of ventilators. And wow. clearly, like, that's not, that's not acceptable. Um, a little bit of good news, though, is, and shout out to South Carolina, if my friend Phoebe is listening, or Zoe, who's also from South Carolina. Um, from the Huffington Post, a doctor named Sarah Ferris and her husband Ryan developed something called a Vesper, which is a ventilator expander device that can allow four different people to use one ventilator. 
So it's still undergoing um, field tests, but hospitals can sign up for the source code and the 3D printing specifications. But um, yeah, it's like, I think so many people are like, we're all going to get it anyway. So what difference does it make that I'm out in the park? Like everything's fine. Like what difference does it make if I just go hang out with my friends because I feel fine. And this is part of the problem is that when the capacity we have is so limited and things are overwhelmed, you are forcing a situation where people are going to not have the chance to survive because they're like, well, this person is 30 or we're going to try to save them, but this person in their 60s or whatever, like they'll be fine. Not that that's the mindset at the time, but that's going to be what happens. So... Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And also a reminder that, you know, people, young young people are dying from this sometimes. Um, people in their 20s and occasionally younger. So while it, it's, it's a toss-up, honestly, that you're taking your life in your hands by assuming, oh, I'm, you know, I'm 29, I'll be fine, whatever. Like, you might be, you might have no symptoms, but you don't know that. You know, like like all these things about underlying health conditions is assuming that you know exactly what's going on with your body, too. And you, sometimes you don't. Sometimes there's undiagnosed stuff going on. So not to scare people, but like, please don't please take this seriously for yourself, if not for everyone else as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's scary to think that, you know, I think we may have reported on something like this one time before, like who determines you know, whose life is to be preserved, to put that in the hands of medical professionals who are really probably at wit's end trying to survive this thing themselves. You know, just think about the condition they're in when they have to be the persons to make these decisions as well. Um, yeah, it's really awful to consider that any one of us could just be less valuable, if you will, than the other because of something we can't control. Here is a quote from a ProPublica uh, Jasmine, when you said that thing about Alabama, it was so shocking. I wanted to try to pull up a quote from what they actually wrote and from a public right, article. Right, yeah, and I read that. Uh, it says, Alabama's plan says, quote, persons with severe mental retardation, advanced dementia, or severe traumatic brain injury may be poor candidates for ventilator support. And yeah, that's. I mean, some of the, those terms are can be big swaths of people that are not uh, people that are in danger of dying anyway. Not normal guidelines for triage, and so that was really scary when when you said that. Yeah, like it's really. My belief is that ultimately the best thing is to not operate from a place of scarcity because whenever there can ever be an argument made that like, well, we just don't have enough for everybody, even the best of people is going to resort back to like their biases or like who they are predisposed to think is like a more deserving person. And it's just it's real. it's horrible you know it's like people being told like flat out like I have a friend who has a relative who you know not that age is the most important thing but she's a relatively young person but she's immunocompromised and she was told to her face by a nurse that if like a younger healthier like someone in better health were to come in that they would have to bump her down 
And I'm like, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be told something like that to your face. So like, like you're absolutely right, Emily. There's people of all ages who are dying of this thing. There's, you know, we don't have a great health system, period. So a lot of people don't know a lot about their own bodies until it's an emergency. But the fact that, like, if you're a young person and you get really sick and it is not to sound like fucked up, but it's like if it's because, like, you weren't taking it seriously now you're the person that is bumping somebody else who is in one of these vulnerable groups off of the ventilator and it wasn't necessary. So yeah, like it's, it's very scary times. There's a lot of disability advocates that are obviously fighting against these guidelines, but I'm putting my hope in like more innovation and more production of these um, types of equipment that people need so that the choices won't be necessary. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for writing this. I, I worked for five years with people with severe mental illness uh, or mental disabilities, I should say. And I mean, so it, it touches a nerve when I hear uh, language uh, that that makes them subhuman or. Yeah, it's it's just it really because <laughs> it's, it's just so ignorant. And I understand people don't have experience. Not everyone has experience with people that are very different from the way that we act, um, like typical or, you know, neurotypical people act, but still, and I think the point of this article is to say like, to make decisions not based off of feelings and fear and, uh, but to plan ahead and try to just do the best we can. Yeah. And honestly, I, I've heard little things about those ventilate, like people trying to reconfigure ventilators to help more than one person at a time, which is pretty incredible and pretty amazingly innovative and also a reminder that you know crises breed innovation not not to and i don't mean that in a way like oh this oh, this is all for a better purpose it's not this is terrible um but like society like we're we're gonna see things happening that we never thought we'd see because of something really terrible, crazy happening. And and hopefully those are going to be good things mostly at the end of all mm -hmm. this. Um, anyway, so we were, let's push forward to the next story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just for the sake of time, as my favorite phrase goes, um, Matt, I think, do you, do we want to do your national? So coming up, we have a ton of um, jail population focused stories. Do we want to do them all at once or do we want to do one, take a break, do the others? I think um, we should do one and then take a break and bring the last one. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I'll start with uh, coronavirus and jails. Uh, and some of, and this is, uh, most of this is coming from uh, the Marshall Project. Uh, most of, most, <laughs> some of you may know that I have a podcast called At Night I Fly that's releasing soon. And my co-host is Spoon Jackson. He is an incarcerated person in California. And the prison he is in is a level two prison, which means dorm style living, i.e. communal living. Spoon reports 20, or 218 people share sharing 18 toilets. So that is close quarters with uh, an overpopulation. Spoon is 62 with diabetes, which puts him at risk, though I should say He's been managing his levels well recently, so that reduces the danger. Uh, good job, Spoon. He actually just told me a cute story about this where he hadn't been taking it seriously and 
a nurse basically yelled at him <laughs> and was like, you know, I know you want to eat potato chips and a cup of noodles every day, uh, but take this shit seriously. And he started to. So, you know, way to go. Across the nation, people have been calling for the release of incarcerated people. In Ohio, they released over 400 people deemed to have medical problems. Iowa released 700 people that had previously been cleared by the parole board. And Wisconsin is not taking in new nonviolent or low offending prisoners. The Houston County Jail in Texas is doing the same. From an article in the Marshall Project, quote, across the country, the coronavirus breaking is across the country. The coronavirus outbreak is transforming criminal justice in the most transient and turbulent part of the system, local jails. Run mostly by county sheriffs, jails hold an ever-changing assortment of people. Those who are awaiting trial and cannot afford to, to pay bail, those convicted of low-level offenses, overflows from crowded prisons. Basically, the shit hit the fan, said Corbin Brewster, chief public defender of Tulsa County. COVID-19 is just a magnifying glass for all the problems in the criminal justice system, end quote. Some of the jailers aren't stopping there. To avoid putting economically vulnerable and psychologically vulnerable people at risk, a Bay Area prison is helping find shelter, is helping find shelter for the newly released people. Quote, a sheriff's spokesperson said the agency was connecting those released with no place to go with local hotels that had empty rooms because of the vi- because the virus has decimated tourism, end quote. As we all are observing, the coronavirus is showing us all of our faults and failures in every facet of society. An isolationist presidency ignored a problem because it wasn't on our shores. A cutthroat economy left businesses exposed to just one week of loss of profit. A privatized healthcare system can't coordinate on a national level to allocate resources, let alone pay for itself. God forbid there's a crisis. And our prisons designed to hide away our shame are now showing us so clearly exactly how much we value or don't value human life. I talked to Spoon yesterday and he thinks that we're all overreacting, but I guess I'm just glad that we're reacting at all. Wow. Yeah. Um, Well, there's definitely more to come on this topic. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, do we, yeah, I mean, yes, the next segment we have looks at jail populations worldwide. So maybe we discuss all of that as a whole at that point. Sounds good. What are we so going we, out on? Or we can music? take a quick break. A little bit of music. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. yeah a little. Just a little something, something. Uh, the next song is Indie I Read. There's Hope. We'll be right back on it. Objection to the Rule. Back when I had a little, I thought that I needed a lot. A little was overrated, but a lot was a little too complicated. See, zero didn't satisfy me, a million didn't make me happy. That's when I learned the lesson. 
that is all about your perceptions. Hey, are you a popper or a superstar? So you act, so you feel, so you are. It ain't about the size of your car. It's about the size of the faith in your heart. There's hope. It doesn't cost a thing to smile. You don't have to pay to laugh. You better thank God for that. There's hope. It doesn't cost a thing to smile. You don't have to pay to laugh. You better thank God for that. There's hope. In the back country of Brazil, I met a young brother that made me feel that. Could accomplish All right, welcome back to Objections to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So we just want to make sure we shout out um, all of our local businesses and local media operating right now um, during this time of the coronavirus. Make sure you are supporting them. Emily, I think this is where you jump in. Yeah, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of places to put your money if you still have any right now. Um, but again, Radio Free Brooklyn, and if you want to support independent media in times of crisis, make sure that um, you know independent media can survive crises like this. We're still doing our you know Drive to Five campaign. Um, but again, also uh, there's a ton of local uh, restaurants in the area um, in Bushwick. Dashi, I believe, is the name of the a uh, restaurant that was going to host a big event we were going to have, but um, I'm just making sure I have the right name right now uh, for a fundraiser, but yeah, Dashi Brooklyn. Um, and, but of course, like that's not going to happen right now because we're all being smart and social distancing, but um, they're doing delivery. Um, you know, delivery is how a lot of restaurants are staying in business. If you feel safe enough to, and have the income to order in. Um, yeah. Or you can get a gift card to spend later. Um, when all of this calms down, um, yeah, just a reminder to not a reminder, just like, you know, a call to if you have the resources um, to support, you local know, businesses and local yeah, media. exactly. Yeah. There you go, guys. All right. Well, I guess we're on to some world news. Um, and this last portion of the show is uh, dedicated to a story I put together. Um, from CNN, MSN, and Al Jazeera called the Rona's prisoner release. So, um, yeah, I called it the Rona just because I wanted to go on record of saying that. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, nice go along with a little bit of what Matt was saying earlier. Uh, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Barchlet, made a statement this week asking countries to release prisoners and people in immigration detention centers from the coronavirus. Um, Several countries and local authorities have already begun releasing prisoners in a bid to stem the spread of the virus throughout those organizations. So, Matt, you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on in Colombia? In Colombia, uh, quote, at least 23 people have died in one of Bogota's largest jails after what the authorities are calling a mass breakout attempt amid rising tensions over coronavirus, unquote. That's from the BBC. It's not just one event. In 13 of the prisons across the country, they all had incidents like this. The uh, the justice minister doesn't think that it's an act of protest or resulting from poor conditions, though it should be said that the, the facts don't support that claim. Um, the prisons are overcrowded and uh, and it's it's becoming an issue. The, the prisoners, it's it, it feels like Attica, but you know, in Colombia, 
in many ways. And they're kind of dragging their feet, uh, like kind of like, what can we do? Well, what this article is all about is we can release nonviolent. Um, we, we can release those that don't need to be in prison anyway. Right. I mean, that's the whole sub-message of, of our prison block today, of all our stories on prison. It's like, do these people need to be incarcerated anyway? If exactly. we can't even do it anyway, why are we holding them there? Yeah. Wow. So that's what okay. I got from Columbia. Um, all right. So, it, it's across the world, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. In Ethiopia, President Zal Work Zawade has granted pardon to more than 4,000 prisoners in a directive that only covers those given the maximum sentence of three years for minor crimes and those who were about to be released from jail. Uh, Germany's most populous state, uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, uh, on Wednesday announced the plans to release as many as 1,000 prisoners in order to free up cells to be used as quarantine rooms out of concern that coronavirus could spread unchecked in jails. The plan would see prisoners released who had only a short part of their sentence left to run. So in the U.S., Attorney General William Barr on Thursday recommended the release of all at-risk inmates to home confinement for the remainder of their sentences, signaling the cause to release prisoners to limit the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. jails. Uh, Barr said federal authorities should prioritize the release of at-risk inmates, including those with pre-existing conditions and the elderly, including roughly 10,000 federal inmates over the age of 60. The U.S. has a complex system of jail jails and prisons administered on a national, state, and local levels. So it's a little bit difficult uh, sometimes for uh, them to get these these different uh, rules pushed through all through levels of the government. New York City has made headlines for its efforts to release incarcerated individuals on the local level, um, as it assumes the role as the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. As most prisons and jail systems have canceled visitations, it should still be considered that requests for medical attention can take up to two weeks to be answered, which could be a death sentence for inmates whose immune systems are compromised and basic hygienic items like soap are in short supply. Officials in New York City released 200 inmates from jails on Thursday and an under 175 are planned for release, bringing the number of incarcerated in the city down to levels not seen since World War II. It's pretty crazy. Uh, but governments aren't really inclined to move quickly on this, considering that city mayors cannot always make the decisions on their own and must confer with governors and jail officials. Um, but still, urgency is important. And for prisons and jails, it's important for us to really act on this as soon as possible. So thanks, yeah. Matt, for tag teaming that um, that segment with me. Yeah, let them out. I mean, a lot of prisons are very unhygienic. There's problems with mold. There's problems with uh, poor water. Uh, obviously, living in close quarters is is uh, heightens the the dangers of of this virus getting in. Yeah, so you know, like they haven't had an opportunity, or I don't know if they have you know, to really disinfect and go through all of the precautions that all of us at home can do. You know, they can't even protect themselves um, and we can't even be there to help them. I'm sure it's pretty been difficult to get supplies and goods to the jails as well with everything being slowed down. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I was also reading that, you know, it's it not only let's say you don't care about prisoners. Let's say you're a person who thinks they deserve to be where they are. Um there, which I don't feel, but um, there's, you know, the the people who are working in these jails, the guards, the cleaning people, they're also at risk of picking up stuff that spreads in confined conditions and then bringing it home with them, bringing it back to their communities at the end of the day. So 
just another reminder that we're all connected, right? You might not care about that person, but if they get sick, that's bad news for you too. And it's, you know, this is a wake up call for a lot of people maybe to really start looking at all of us as like a single unit of a population. Yeah, um, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah um, I just wanted to add that um, this issue and also what we were talking about earlier with people with different disabilities and also people who are elderly and might have Alzheimer's and other chronic conditions, it says a lot that these are people that are often, whether it's prison or some of these other institutions, there's this out of sight, out of mind attitude. But when something like this happens, like those are the people that are the most at risk because they are in very close proximity to each other. Like they're all the people that are the most vulnerable all put together. And so they're like the super vulnerable group. And, you know, I think it shows that we need to be thinking more about ways to have more individualized approaches to helping people, whether it's people who have broken some kind of a law, someone who might need extra assistance to go about their day instead of having this approach that we tend to have, which is to almost like warehouse people, you know, because it's inherently not a humane way to deal with things like and I think that this pandemic is really you know laying that out to bear and it's on full display that yeah like as soon as one person in one of these places gets sick it's only a matter of time before everybody else within that community is now struggling for their life yeah definitely that's um, fucked up definitely. yeah I, but if they uh, move on this, my, my buddy might get released, though. <laughs> Which, yeah. That, that would yeah. be weird. I mean, I don't, I'm not thinking that's going to happen, but he does have legal representation. And that would be funny if something good came out of this because they were planning yeah. for later this spring for another try at clemency. All right. That would be yeah, great. And like I got this. an older brother that's in jail, too. So I would love for Andre to come home. I think he's supposed to be home next year. So it would be really great if he could be released at this mm. point. Yes. Yeah, maybe we can write letters and encourage people listening to try to push for that then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we have one last story. Emily made a really nice uh, bit about good news. Please share. Please share. I am so happy. I had a very good time researching this finally. Um, so, yes, I have a few a few short good news bits because um, we all need some extra good news these days. And I am very happy to accommodate. Um, they're all coronavirus related, which I'm sure surprises no one. But um, all right. So one, scientists are reporting that the coronavirus is not mutating quickly. Um, that's from the Washington Post. Um, so according to an article by Joel Achenbach, apologies for the spelling uh, or pronunciation, but the article is from March 24th. And it says that the coronavirus is not mutating significantly as it circulates through the human population according to scientists who are closely studying the novel pathogen's genetic code. That relative stability suggests the virus is less likely to become more or less dangerous as it spreads and represents encouraging news for researchers hoping to create a long-lasting vaccine. All viruses evolve over time, accumulating mutations as they replicate imperf imperfectly inside of host cells. 
The new coronavirus, however, however, looks pretty much the same everywhere it has appeared, scientists say, and there is no evidence that some strains are deadlier than others. Um, this is great news, especially because it means that a single vaccine would likely work to inoculate the population, such like for diseases like measles, you get that once as a baby, which everyone should, um, and then you're done. And unlike flu vaccines, because the flu mutates so rapidly, you need to get a new vaccine every year. Um, the article notes that, all, quote, although one team of scientists earlier this year suggested there might be two distinct strains of the virus with different levels of typical disease severity, that conjecture has not been embraced by the scientific community. So in case you heard that, it's not really been accepted. Um, and, every, and, you know, there's been some rumors that everything's so bad in Italy because it's a worse strain, but that's also it's they're finding that that's not the case and that it's more situational, that the population's older and the hospitals were underprepared and, you know, understaffed and things like that. Or maybe I don't know if they're understaffed, but underprepared. Yes. For something like this. Um, so that's story number one. Story number yeah. two. Yes, it looks like social distancing is working in New York City. Yes. Um, according to The New York Times this past Wednesday, Governor Cuomo, quote, highlighted data that showed slowing hospitalization rates. On Sunday, the state's projection showed hospitalizations doubling every two days, while Tuesday's estimates showed them doubling only every 4.7 days. The governor said that this is almost too good to be true. Um, so, you know, we've seen these numbers going up and they're alarming, but it's also a reminder that those are numbers reflecting our pre-social distancing habits, right? So people were getting sick at those numbers because we weren't all social distancing. And then almost two days later that those numbers have started to like flatten out. So just a reminder that it, it looks like it's working. Obviously we'll see updated numbers as we go along. Hopefully those numbers stick, but this is very good. Um, real quick, uh, we're, we have like 30 seconds left, but the Dyson, Dyson, va uh, the British vacuum cleaner company has developed a new ventilator in 10 days. Uh, it still needs to be approved, but there, you know, it uh, just looks like the innovation that we're able to do in this time is pretty wild and they're uh oh you just cut out um, i turned it off. that was it that was the end of the story oh great um yeah well, that, that is good news thanks for bringing us those stories all right well we want to thank everybody for listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn um where you can hear lots of independent radio um, you can catch all our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or iTunes podcast. Listen up next for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to, well, we may play you out if there's a little bit of time. But if there's not, we'll see you next Sunday. This is yeah. Tribe Called Quest the Love. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Stay safe. Love we do it all for love, y'all.